Everything I see, and indeed all that I have ever seen, is in consciousness, in my consciousness, in my mind. This is true for every sound I hear as well, and every sensation of the body. The surfaces of the skin, the movement of joints and muscles, pressure, tingling, itchiness, pain, heat and cold. We have discussed how topographical maps in the cerebral cortex account for the orderliness of the visual field, the directionality of sound perception, the adjacency of one area of flesh to another. Topographical mapping in the cortex lays out the spatial world in a conserved manner, such that if I see two objects next to each other, which is to say that light from both falls on adjacent areas of the retina, they are mapped next to each other in the visual cortex, too. The somatosensory cortex, at the most anterior edge of the parietal lobe, just across a deep fissure from the motor cortex of the frontal lobe, has a map of the body. It is certainly a monstrous rendition, often called the sensory homunculus, but it is undeniably an ordered structure. Neurons responsible for perception of the foot are close to neurons responsible per for perception of the ankle, for example. If we consider three different aspects of the phenomenal landscape, the visual landscape, the auditory landscape, and the somatic landscape, an immediate observation is that they overlay into a common perception of the world. They are related. The sounds we hear seem to come from somewhere in three-dimensional space. The objects we see seem to appear somewhere in that same space and the body has shape and extension within the very same three-dimensional space. From an objective point of view on events in the world, this is perfectly obvious to us that the body, the sources of light and sound, are all situated in a common space and time. But it is much less obvious how our subjective landscape is made to correspond accurately with features of the real world. Remember, the primary auditory cortex is in the temporal lobe, at a great distance from the primary visual cortex back in the occipital lobe, and again distally located with respect to the somatosensory cortex up at the front of the parietal lobe. All three modalities of interest for this discussion are mapped topographically in different lobes, not at all in common space. It therefore seems necessary to look to multimodal association cortex to find the convergence of these single modality maps. This has been studied. In an fMRI study by Mann, Kaplan, Damasio, and Meyer in 2012, the authors identified the superior temporal sulcus as becoming uniquely activated regardless of the modality which gave rise to the percept. While in the fMRI, the subjects were presented with five-second audiovisual clips, such as a church bell, a typewriter, or a pneumatic drill. The researchers also presented these clips with just the visual stimulus or just the audio. They found that the posterior part of the superior temporal sulcus showed content specificity, meaning that different perceived objects had different patterns of activation, and also importantly, modality invariance, meaning that the area became activated similarly when the same object was either seen or heard. They concluded that the posterior superior temporal sulcus, PSTS, functions in the recognition of objects through multiple different sensory channels. This implies that the PSTS represents the objects conceptually. In the discussion section of the paper, they write, quote, According to a neuroarchitectural framework proposed by Damasio, neuron ensembles in higher-order association cortices constitute convergence-divergence zones, CDZs, which register associations among perceptual representations from multiple sensory modalities. Due to the convergent bottom-up projections they receive from early sensory cortices, 
CDZs can be activated, for instance, both by the sight and the sound of a specific object. Once activated, the CDZs can reinstantiate the associated representations in different sensory cortices by means of divergent top-down projections. This reinstantiation of activity patterns in early sensory cortices distinguishes the CDZ framework from other models that posit nonspecific modulatory feedback mechanisms. In brief, according to the CDZ framework, the bottom-up processing of sensory stimuli would be continuously accompanied by the top-down reconstruction of associated patterns in different modalities." Unquote. Whether or not the discovery of the modality-independent function of the PSDS provides strong evidence for Damasio's convergence-divergence zone framework, the hypothesis is, is an interesting one, and it seems to me that something quite like it should be expected in order to account for the common mapping of space that we experience in common across different modes of perception. The following passage is taken from the previous episode. I said, quote, Here in the common space of a unified conscious mind are Hume's cause and effect, resemblance and contiguity in time or space. Here are not only percepts, but ideas about percepts. Language is the capacity to give name to the qualia, to describe how they interact or what they signify. Religion is belief about qualia, their transcendent symbolism, and so on. Abstract thinking enables the percepts to be quantified, added up, or multiplied, or laid out into logical arrangements. Creativity is the capacity to, to do novel things with the percepts, to imagine them and visualize them, to analogize. All of these cognitive capacities seem to be behaviors that we can engage in. We can thus manipulate the world of perceptual and conceptual things with the tools of cognition, just as we can manipulate the material world with our hands and teeth." Unquote. In that section, I drew the distinction between consciousness and cognition, between, for example, perceptual experience and acting on what is experienced by using the tools of attention and thinking. In principle, we should be able to be conscious even if all such tools are disabled. Here, I think the phenomenon of dreaming is instructive. In dreaming, the frontal cortex shows reduced activity, which accounts for the fact that we do not act out our dreams. Remember, the primary motor cortex, as well as the premotor areas, are located in the frontal lobe. Recall as well that the frontal cortex is critical for executive functions and attentional control. In agreement, the experiences we have in dreams have a kind of spectator aspect. Things happen beyond the control that we enjoy in waking life. Thinking rationally and carrying out plans is very difficult. I find that I cannot dial a telephone number, for example. I become frustrated by such a task, but sadly, it never occurs to me that I must therefore be dreaming. A notable exception to this incapacity is in the realm of language production. I can speak quite effectively in my dreams. In fact, I sometimes have conversations in near-fluent Italian in my dreams. I note, too, that people talk in their sleep more often than they otherwise act out. I suspect that this is because the comprehension and expression of language are situated in parts of the temporal lobe, not just the front. My daughter frequently talks in her sleep, probably to the people of whom she is dreaming. Her words are sensible. I can understand her fine, but she can't hear me if I respond to her, answering the question she's just posed aloud. We learned from Christoph Koch in previous episodes that the primary visual cortex is not necessary for experiencing vision in dreams. In the quest for consciousness, he wrote, quote, when volunteers are deprived of sleep for one night and their cerebral blood flow is monitored using positron emission tomography while they catch up on their sleep the next night, a more nuanced picture emerges. The activity pattern of the dreaming brain has a unique signature, 
quite distinct from the awake brain. In particular, V1 and directly adjacent regions are suppressed compared to slow wave sleep, while higher level visual areas in the fusiform gyrus and the medial temporal lobe are highly activated. These latter structures can thus be assumed to mediate the sensation of seeing events unfold during dreaming. Patients who lose their primary visual cortex to strokes continue to experience visual dreams, providing additional evidence that activity in V1 is unnecessary for dreaming." Unquote. So it would appear that consciousness is quite present when only parietal, temporal, and occipital association areas are functioning fully. The experience might be a lot different from a healthy awake condition. It is nevertheless like something to only have these posterior structures doing their business. A 2016 review article by Koch, Massimini, Boli, and Tononi supports this view. The authors write, quote, The neural mechanisms that are jointly sufficient for being conscious in a broad sense, irrespective of the particular contents of experience, are usually identified through state-based approaches. These involve contrasting brain activity when consciousness is present, typically in awake, healthy participants performing no task, with brain activity when consciousness is severely diminished, for example, during dreamless sleep, general anesthesia, or disorders of consciousness such as coma and vegetative states. Similar to findings from studies of content-specific NCC, such studies of the full NCC often find that a frontoparietal network is activated when one is conscious. However, it is important to note that major changes in the physiological state of the brain alter not only consciousness, but also several other brain functions, such as vigilance and attention, that depend on levels of arousal-promoting neuromodulators. One approach to address these confounds is to use a within-state, no-task paradigm, taking advantage of spontaneous fluctuations of consciousness. For example, during sleep, participants are disconnected from the environment and are not performing a task. If awakened from the same behaviorally defined state, such as non-rapid eye movement, NREM, sleep, participants at times report that they are having conscious experiences, dreams, and at other times that they were unconscious. Activities seen by EEG during sleep, either non-REM or REM sleep, preceding retrospective reports of consciousness and unconsciousness can then be contrasted within the same physiological state. Such experiments indicate that in both non-REM and REM sleep, the full NCC appear to be localized to a temporal parietal occipital region associated with perceptual experiences and to a frontal region associated with thought-like experiences. High frequency activity in the posterior cortical regions predicts the perceptual categories experienced during dreaming, such as faces, spatial setting, movements, and speech. The posterior cortical zone identified through this within-state no-task paradigm largely overlaps with the union of cortical areas identified in studies of content-specific NCC during waking and with neuropsychological evidence. Because of this converging evidence, the posterior cortical region can be considered as a hot zone for the NCC." Unquote. The authors speak of no-task paradigms. This is important for trying to isolate the necessary and sufficient regional brain activities for consciousness, the neural correlates of consciousness, or NCC. We must be careful to distinguish wherever possible between consciousness, the experience of content, and cognitive functions which involve the manipulation of content. Let's have an example. We start with a simple receptive state of mind and notice the contents of consciousness. I see a visual field composed of objects of various colors and shapes arranged in space. Maybe the air feels a little cool on my skin. I hear a slight background buzz from my computer, a low rumble outside, probably a truck. 
Now, suppose I want to change my experience in some way. I want to act, to behave, to manipulate by direct or indirect means the contents of my consciousness. I could pinch my arm. That would produce a new sensation. I could yell, serenity now. That might be interesting. Those actions involve voluntary movement. I could also manipulate the contents of my consciousness by directing my attention to something or by thinking about something. Let's do that. Okay, an animal. A camel. There he is in my mind now. He's got a stupid, glassy-eyed look on his face. He's chewing his cud in a dismissive way. It's disrespectful. Fuck that camel. I'll show him who could be dismissive. I'll think of something else. How about that? If this were a dream, I would unfortunately be limited in such capacities. Me and the camel would probably have to go back to my high school or something. When a subject in an experiment is given a task, even a simple task, and researchers are measuring brain activity by whatever means, they will inevitably get a readout of the response to the task. This is a problem for studying consciousness because it makes it impossible to isolate the neural correlate from the task response. Suppose a subject is looking at an ambiguous figure, the Necker cube while lying in an fMRI machine. The subject pushes a button whenever his or her view of the cube switches so that a new face appears to be the forward face of the cube. The experiment is to see the neural correlate of seeing one confirmation of the cube versus the other, but the fMRI will show not just the activity involved in the perception of the cube, it will also show the correlate of the subject noticing that it changed, deciding to press the button and pressing it. Thus, we will see frontal cortex activation even in a no-task paradigm with the subject just looking at the Necker cube in the fMRI machine, if the subject notices a change and thereby is caused to attend to it, this effect will show up, probably in the frontal cortex. Functional changes in the frontal cortex that occur in these studies might reflect cognitive functions, the signature of tool usage in the manipulation of or thinking about the objects of perception and not consciousness itself, the experience of the perception. For this reason, the authors of that review and many other neuroscientists have begun to focus on the posterior regions as the real locus of interest for consciousness per se. Data from anesthesiology are in agreement with the posterior cortical localization of conscious perception. In a 2008 article in Science, Alkire, Hudetz, and Tononi wrote, quote, Are some cortical areas more important than others for the induction of unconsciousness by anesthetics? Evoked responses in primary sensory cortices, the first relay for incoming stimuli, are often unchanged during anesthesia, deep sleep, and in vegetative patients. Also, activity in primary sensory areas often does not correlate with perceptual experience. Frontal cortex, too, may not be essential for anesthetic unconsciousness, as different anesthetics have variable effects on this area. For instance, at equivalent hypnotic doses, both propofol and thiopental deactivate posterior brain areas, but only propofol deactivates frontal cortex. Furthermore, large lesions of the frontal cortex do not by themselves produce unconsciousness. Anesthetic-induced unconsciousness is usually associated with deactivation of mesial parietal cortex, posterior cingulate cortex, and precuneus. These same areas are deactivated in vegetative patients but are the first to reactivate in those who recover. Moreover, neural activities in these areas is altered during seizures associated with an impairment of consciousness and in sleep. These mesial cortical areas are strategically located at the main hub of the brain's connectional core. They are also part of a default network that is especially active at rest and may be involved in global monitoring of the internal environment and several functions related to the self. Nevertheless, 
Mesiocortical areas are deactivated in REM sleep when subjects experience vivid dreams. It is intriguing that at intermediate doses, certain anesthetics such as nitrous oxide produce a fairly selective deactivation of posterior mesial cortex. Yet when these areas start to turn off, subjects report dreamlike feelings with depersonalization and out-of-body experiences rather than unconsciousness. In addition to the core mesial cortical areas, many anesthetics also deactivate or disconnect a lateral temporal parietal occipital complex of multimodal associative areas centered on the inferior parietal cortex. In this case, lesion and anesthesia data are mutually supportive. Patients with bilateral lesions at the temporal parietal occipital junction show no sign of perceptual experience despite a flurry of undirected motor activity, a condition called hyperkinetic mutism. Thus, a complex of posterior brain areas comprising the lateral temporal parietal occipital junction and perhaps a mesial cortical core are the most likely final common target for anesthetic-induced unconsciousness." Unquote. Evidence suggests that the posterior cortical region, then, is the best place to look for the overlapping multimodal coordinated map that we experience as space around us. The body representation seems to occur on that same map. The way objects on the map look, compared with the sounds they make, for example, suggest a multidimensional geometry. But the space itself, as we experience it, is undeniably a three-dimensional one. When I hear physicists and mathematicians talking about the possibility of, say, 14 dimensions to describe baseline reality, rather than just space and time, in the Einsteinian paradigm, I am caused to wonder whether our allegiance to the latter is imposed by the structure of our brains. The associational cortices, which give rise to our perception of space, are under no obligation to show us the truth about where we live. Everything we see, everything we hear, it's all enclosed in the conscious mind. What is really out there is utterly unknowable by perception. We wander a landscape of posterior cortex, you and I. When something appears over there, over there picks out a place in the parietal cortex, not a place somewhere in the outside world. We are looking around, listening to events, smelling and tasting and interacting with the objects of a posterior cortical landscape. It is a matter of faith that this integrated cortical system is producing a miniature version of a world outside, that the hand I lift before my face is a copy of a real thing out there in the world, as well as an event in the brain.